This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hello and welcome to Health and Living. I'm T. Xiao Ik. Heart failure. The healthcare professionals refer to it as the end game. It is a common end stage consequence of most diseases of the heart. But its name can be deceptive. While it is a serious condition affecting the heart's ability to pump blood around the body, it doesn't mean that the heart has failed completely. And today, the treatments for heart failure have expanded extensively, giving patients renewed hope at leading a normal life. This is another episode of NCD Chronicles, a series where we go beyond the disease diagnosis to look at the lived experiences and real challenges faced by people who have non-communicable diseases. This episode is brought to you by Novartis Malaysia, reimagining medicine to help improve and extend lives of over 32 million Malaysians. So, uh, I was diagnosed with heart failure in 2021. Um, it was a grueling tale, I think, from the time that I was fell ill and was admitted to CCU. And after six long weeks of admission, uh, I was finally discharged. Um, after that, there was a quite a long period for me to go back to work. But now I'm back to work. I'm already starting back on my training. And uh, tomorrow is another day. <laughs> I'm Yong Di Jun. I'm a 36 years old. Uh, I'm working as a doctor and at the same time, I'm studying for my specialty training now as well. Uh, so actually in 2021, I was in my training and I was uh, transferred to Sabah to continue my training there. Uh, new place, new experience. Actually, was very excited to go over there. Um, but when I arrived there, I think shortly after that, I started to develop um, quite severe shortness of breath. Um, whereby I had difficulty like walking from my car to the ward and even between seeing patients, I had to sit down. Um, I started having difficulties falling asleep. Uh, not really falling asleep, as in every time I slept, I had to, I would wake up panting or uh, having difficulty to breathe. But at the time, I attributed a lot to it to anxiety, you no know, new place, maybe I'm just not, not comfortable in a new place. But um, as it got worse, actually, because we were also at the height of pandemic, I keep thinking I had COVID at that time. So, but after two weeks of trying to prove they had COVID and every time I was negative, um, I was very fortunate. Uh, a friend actually brought me to see another medical specialist and he was the one who suggested I do a uh, heart scan, an echocardiogram. And that was when we diagnosed and found out that I had heart failure. So actually by that time, it was about two weeks after my symptoms had started. I was actually in quite bad shape. Um, I had only 23% of my heart left um, and I was immediately uh, admitted into the CCU. My blood pressure was quite yo-yo. It was at time time so low that I needed to pump in medication to make my blood, uh, blood pressure and heart rate go up. At the same time, uh, my blood pressure was too high, so they needed to give me medication to bring it down. So the initial, I think, one, one and a half weeks was quite difficult to control my blood pressure. And after spending three weeks there uh, with treatments, the discussion had came up for me to fly back to Peninsula to get further treatment. And I flew back for another three more weeks in the hospital before uh, finally being able to be discharged at that time. 
What exactly happens in heart failure? What causes such severe shortness of breath? Professor Dr. Chi Kok Han, a consultant cardiologist, explains. So essentially, the heart is uh, it's like the engine of the body. So it's actually pump the blood uh, from the heart, of course, to the brain, the muscle, the intestine and all that. So essentially, it's like the engine. So it will actually, by pumping the blood to the brain, for example, it actually provide the nutrition, the oxygen uh, to this, all these vital organs. Now, the problem that we are going to discuss today, of course, is heart failure. So what it actually means literally is that the engine has failed. The heart is actually not able to pump efficiently the blood to all these vital organs. So, for example, the muscle of our body, then this is where the problem will start, right? First, the patient will feel very tired uh, for obvious reason. We are not pumping enough oxygen to the brain. Then it will actually also cause problems with the kidney and we will start seeing the patient having water retention. So you will start seeing patient complain, my legs is swelling up, my doctor's telling me my there is actually water inside the lungs. So this is usually when we see the patient with heart failure. The usual symptom that we see is fatigue or tiredness uh, that get water retention in the body and they feel very breathless easily for a few reasons. Firstly, because of water retention in the lungs. Secondly, because now the heart is not pumping very well. The engine is not functioning very well. So this is usually how patients with heart failure will present to us. What would cause the heart to sustain this kind of damage? Yeah, so this is a very good question. In fact, heart failure is what we call the end game for a lot of heart disease, all right? Whether you're looking at, for example, a, a young baby who is actually blue the moment they are birthed because they have something called congenital heart problem, or you actually have somebody who actually have um, heart attack before, or they actually have some virus infection of the heart affecting the heart muscle. So all these illnesses that are actually affecting the heart, if they are not being treated properly, they will end up as heart failure. So heart failure to us is something like an end game for most, if not all, the heart problem. So this puts a significant proportion of our population at risk of heart failure. So in Malaysia, in fact, in global, we can roughly divide the cost of the heart failure into two main groups. In fact, it's about half-half of each. One is definitely secondary to blockage, all right? If the patient actually have blockage and have multiple heart attacks, whether it's a major or small heart attack, so of course this heart attack will damage the muscle. So these are the patients who are definitely high risk of getting heart failure. Then the other big chunk or 50% of the other patients with heart failure are usually due to unknown causes. Um, most commonly, is due to the infection of the heart muscle, uh, including the recent COVID outbreak, for example. All this will actually have, can and may damage the heart muscle. And logically, if the heart muscle is damaged, of course, the heart is not able to pump because the muscle has lost its function. So then these are the, the other main cause of the heart failure. So coming back to your question, who are at risk, definitely those who actually have the three high, the hyperpressure, diabetes, and high cholesterol level. These are patients most likely may actually have uh, coronary artery disease or blockage in the blood vessel. So these are the people with definitely higher risk of heart failure. In Malaysia, coronary artery disease is what most people think of when it comes to conditions of the heart. Professor Chi emphasises, however, that people need to understand heart failure is a separate condition that has its own symptoms, distinguishing it from coronary artery disease. 
So sometimes when I speak to the patient, I tell them that, look, the heart is something like a car, all right, for example. So heart failure, that means your engine is not functioning. And coronary artery disease, or what we call the blockage of the blood vessel, is more like your, your petrol pipe is actually blocking and not, su- not supplying enough petrol to the engine. So it's a two different thing. However, if the patient have blockage or coronary artery disease and actually have caused heart attack and some of the heart muscle have have died, then subsequently the patient may actually develop heart failure. So in a way, you can say that coronary artery disease is a risk factor for getting heart failure, but there are two different things. The prevalence of coronary artery disease in our country is increasing, but few people are aware that while surviving a heart attack is an ideal outcome, it doesn't close the book on their health problems. So I have been in cardiology field for about 20 years. When I first started 20 years ago, half of my ward is actually due to coronary artery disease. They come in for a heart attack. But now when I step into the ward, uh, half of my ward nowadays is actually heart failure. Part of the reason is because although some of us are actually, uh, the, some of the population actually well-educated on the risk factor management, but and when they come in for heart attack, we actually have proper medication and proper way to treat. So they actually survive the heart attack. But despite that, the heart muscle also being damaged. So that's the reason why nowadays we're actually seeing more heart failure nowadays. So coronary artery disease is a silent condition where only markers like cholesterol levels can give a hint to the gunk building up in the arteries. Heart failure, on the other hand, has certain hallmark features, as Professor Chi had explained. And yet, diagnosis is often delayed in patients who don't realise that their symptoms are due to a heart problem. Everyone, I think, at some point in time, does feel fatigue and tiredness. So, and that is a problem for us because um, heart failure, unfortunately, their symptoms is actually very non-specific, and that actually lead to the delay of diagnosis or confirming that this is a heart failure. But if you feel fatigue, if you feel tired, and at the same time you start to see water retention, your leg is swelling up like as if um, just like a pregnant mother. When you press on the leg, you actually have a depression on the leg. That means you definitely have water inside your body because like I say the heart is like an engine so the both sides of the leg will definitely have swelling and because of gravity usually you will see swelling on the legs rather than on the arms and this is usually when the patient will get worried and this is usually when they start to seeing the doctors and and by doing some tests then we will know that ah okay this patient definitely have what we call a heart failure. And what kinds of tests would you do? So usually once we see the patient who actually have water over or water retention, usually we'll think of three things, whether the kidney is functioning correct, whether the heart is functioning correct, or whether the liver is functioning correct. So we will usually do some blood tests and some uh, scanning. So to confirm that this is actually a heart failure, usually we will need to do a blood test and also an ultrasound of the heart. Uh, the blood test is what we call a BNP test or brain natriuretic peptide. This is actually what we call a biomarker for heart failure. If the blood test comes back as very, very raised, then this patient most likely have heart failure. Then the other test we definitely will do is what we call echocardiography. Essentially what it means is that just an ultrasound of the heart to see how good or how not good the heart is pumping. Uh, usually we measure the heart function or the heart pumping function in something called percentage or in what we call a left 
ventricular ejection fraction or LVEF uh, in percentage. A normal person who doesn't have any heart problem, usually their percentage is between 60 to 70. Once the heart function drop, the percentage drop anything less than 40, for example, then this is a time we will call them uh, heart failure. As a medical professional, Dr. Young was used to being the one running tests for patients and delivering the diagnosis. But suddenly, the tables were turned. I think it was a new experience. It's, it's one thing to know it and another thing to go through it. Um, I think there were pros and cons to the situation. The pros was that a lot of the procedures that they wanted to do, uh, I readily agreed mainly because I, I understood why it was important. And uh, for me, it just, it, it, because I've also seen similar patients, so for me, it was very part and parcel of how it should happen anyhow. And I think that made things go through uh, quite easily. But partly because I guess it's also not my field of training, there were a lot of procedures which took me by surprise. Like, um, for example, there was one day, uh, they had to do an MRI cardiac. So it's like a special scan for my heart. And they needed to do a stressor test on me as well. So I have seen patients go through MRI, but they usually don't take so long. And I myself, I think it was two and a half hours in the little machine. The machine is not small. There's the, the space where you're lying in is small. So that was about two and a half hours inside. And um, I think at the two and a half hour mark, close to the end, I was really antsy already. I, I keep calling out and asking whether it was going to end because I just felt like um, I couldn't take it any longer. As a matter of fact, I think I my sugar levels also had dropped at that time. So uh, quite embarrassingly, when I came out of the MRI, I was like crying profusely and the radio girl was like, oh, what happened? <laughs> so um, I think it was good in one ways that I knew what was happening, but uh, it's really a new, different experience uh, uh, going through it instead of just knowing about it. After the break, how Dr. Young navigated his path following his diagnosis. This is NCD Chronicles, our series that goes behind the diagnosis of non-communicable diseases. Stay tuned to Health and Living, BFM 89.9. I I think there is something said about um, seeing another person's life and trying to do something for them. Um, For me, particularly in my current, in my field, what draws me is when we are trying to help a patient that nobody else wants to help. Like, there are a lot of people that by the time you get this particular diagnosis or you, you're treating a patient and people say, okay, this is the end, this, this, um, there's no hope or this patient shouldn't be receiving care treatment. And I don't mean to give false hope to my patients as well, but I always have a soft spot to help the people that nobody else wants to help. Um, even if we cannot treat a patient, I believe in dignity and comfort to the patient. At the very least, we must be able to offer that to them. So that has been my driving force la, to remain in this career. Hello and welcome back to Health and Living with me, T. Shaoik, on another episode of NCD Chronicles. Hope, dignity, comfort. The things that Dr. Yong Dae-jun tries to give to his patients are what he received in return when he went through a diagnosis of heart failure. I think I owe a lot to the cardiologist who treated me. Um, I think when I first got diagnosed, I was in extreme denial. Uh, because I still remember I was telling her, you know what, 
just give me a day or two off. I'll be back to training tomorrow. Maybe I'll take an extra one, two days off on my own. Then I will continue working. And I think she she uh, quite quite humorously just nodded her head and said, oh, sure, sure. Um, and I think after the first week of admission, she kind of had to sit me down and like, you know, this isn't what's going to happen. You know, it's, it's going to be a long, long journey and it's a... Uh, it's not going to be a simple one. So I think finally, when it finally settled in my mind that I'm really having this, then began the depressive part of the diagnosis where I start to under why me and what's this going to mean to me, both in my life as well as my career. And um, it, it was a process. Uh, it was quite some time to be able to get out of that dark place. Uh. Even after he was discharged, Dr. Yong had to stay home for three months to recover before he was able to resume work, and even longer before he could function at work as he used to. I think for me initially, uh, of course going back was the greatest joy ever to be able to finally leave the hospital. Despite the fact that I worked there all the time, it was really good to like walk out the doors and like, oh, this is how it feels like to walk out the door and don't look back. Um, but I think when I reached home, it... Um, things got a little bit difficult again at first. So one of the, the things is that I have fluid restrictions, so I can only drink uh, one litre of fluid per day. And when you're sitting in the hospital, being monitored all the time, it's quite easy to 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 follow that. But when you're at home, naturally you want to do things, you you want to do things, and um, with our Malaysian better to add it on to that, uh, it was quite hard to adhere to that. Um, at the same time, um, I was told things like I needed to exercise, walk more. But at the same time, I'm so short of breath that even a simple walk was difficult. And I think it hit hard because I, I used to walk around the housing area and I used to be able to keep up with my dad. Um, the first few times I went, I was like, you know what, dad, you just keep you just keep walking on ahead. I'll be somewhere behind here. You just remember to pick me up when you come back. That's <laughs> all. So uh, the first few times, it, it was quite hard. And you, I never realised how much more weaker I was at that time uh, until I actually came out of the hospital. So the impact of heart failure to the patient's life, so I usually divide them into the physical part of it and the mental part of it. Because the heart is not functioning, so they will actually become breathless easier. For example, maybe six or seven months ago, before they developed the heart failure, they are able to, to walk without any problem. They've been able to walk up to staircase, say, to second floor without stopping or trying to catch a breath. But once the patient actually develops heart failure, maybe 10 steps in the staircase already make them feel breathless and they have to stop. They may need to stop three to four times before they can reach the malls or the market, which is different from before. And for example, in the middle of the night, when they're sleeping, they may actually wake up in the middle of the night because they will try to catch their breath because there's now too many water inside the lungs, make them as if they're suffocating in sleep. So of course, this symptom is very scary and this symptom will definitely sort of make them feel very concerned and very worried. I think most of the patients will say, I'm just not as good, I'm just not as fit, I'm just not sleeping well just as before. So this is mainly the physical part of things. And additionally, because of heart failure, they tend to get more and more water retention in the lungs, so they tend to get hospital admission in and out. In fact, some of them may actually come into the hospital because of water retention of water, uh, water inside the lungs maybe every couple of weeks, which we actually have seen them. So if you imagine that in a patient, especially in a younger patient who actually have a career in front of them, 
Um, so of course, they will feel very, very um, affected and maybe they may actually feel depressed and they actually look at the, the whole situation and outlook of their life in a different way because nowadays even going up a staircase is actually problematic. How am I going to advance in my career? And one thing I, I want to stress is that heart failure is actually not a good thing to have. In fact, studies have shown that heart failure, the outlook, the chance of them dying is actually higher than compared with cancer. For example, if you have a lady with breast cancer versus a lady with heart failure, the chance of dying from heart failure in this lady is actually much higher than uh, the lady with the breast cancer. So when you take all these statistics into account, coming back at the personal level, of course, uh, the patient will definitely have a different outlook uh, at looking at their life and looking at their physical symptoms. That was one of the biggest struggles for Dr. Yong amid coping with his physical limitations. With a dark cloud hanging over his career prospects, he wondered whether he could continue to pursue his specialisation, which would require rigorous physical and mental effort. There were naysayers who whispered doubts into his ear. I guess um, for me, what happened was that initially, uh, Again, with the well-meaning um, people who advise me to perhaps quit or, or start reconsidering my options, um, of course, not all of them are well-meaning people. Uh, this is, I think, something. It happens everywhere. I mean, it's something you can't avoid anyhow. There will always be people like that. So, I actually made a list of the things that I will never be able to do, or the things that I should be considering to give up. And I think somewhere along the line, um, I decided that instead of listing the things that I can't do, it'd be better to list the things that I can do. Um, of course, the options are much less than it will be for a healthy, another healthy person. But by focusing on what I can do instead of what I can't do, then life just keeps on going. Um, I would say in many ways, looking back, in a way I've been given a second chance. Things went very, very relatively well for me. You know, I... I I think I'm very, very blessed that the treatment had gone quite well uh, despite the initial hiccups. Um, so I think for me, that's how it should be. Um, things ca- You can't change what happened, but I can always choose what I want to do in the future. Mm-hmm. Following your prescribed treatment can take you quite far in what you want to achieve at work, right? Oh, for sure, for sure. I, I think... Um, because I think when I first came out and with my severe limitations at then, I was really telling myself that, oh, this cardiologist just pulled, my, just pulled a fast one on me. He is probably bluffing when he said he'll pull me through my training. There's no way I can get through this. And um, he was seeing me quite frequently. So we were, we were adjusting medication and he was giving encouragement. And I think by the time I went back to work, I was like, oh, okay, maybe it's not that far-fetched anymore. And now about two years down the line, still there are restrictions, but um, I'm beginning to feel that there is a hope for tomorrow. That he wasn't really he wasn't really just uh, patting me on the head to calm me down. <laughs> it's definitely palpable. Uh. It's a very palpable difference. This is the hope that heart failure therapies can bring to patients. We need to understand that heart failure doesn't really have a cure because your heart muscle already damaged. So look at it as a lifelong disease, just like how we look at hyperpressure, just like how we look at diabetes. It's going to be a lifelong uh, and in medical terms going to be a chronic disease. 
Um, the good thing is we actually have a lot of advances recently uh, looking at medication, looking at different devices um, that will actually sort of improve the outcome. Um, over the past 20 years or so, we actually start to have a lot of medication that actually have changed the trajectory of this group of patients. The chances of dying is, has been reduced. Uh, the chances of getting hospital admission for heart failure also has been drastically reduced. So nowadays, we actually have what we call four groups of medication in our management of heart failure. So we have something called renal angiotensin inhibitor. We also have something called beta blocker. And nowadays, we have something called SGLT2 inhibitors and also something called mineral corticoid uh, antagonist. So these four groups now become the mainstay of medication for us to treat heart failure, regardless what's the cause, whether you are caused by some viral attack before or heart attack before. These four medications, if we actually put uh, on board on this patient, the outlook has changed. Not just the outlook. In fact, they feel much better. Dr. Yong is now a pill popper, but these medications are what keep him alive. Um, so medically, I am very fortunate. I'm still on follow-up and uh, I'm taking medication for my heart failure. Some of the medications are common drugs, but because of my condition, so some of them are not so common. Uh, it's like taking, taking candies every day, morning and night. In total, it's six, but actually it's five types because one is taken twice a day. One of them uh, is actually for cholesterol. Uh, I have one for my heart, that's the uh, beta blockers. Uh, the rest are, are quite specific for heart failure. And, and then I have a fluid restriction. I can only take one liter of fluid per day. And uh, on top of that, I actually am on a CPAP machine at night uh, for, for sleeping. Uh, that's to help me breathe. Not forgetting, I think the other part is important is the patient himself or herself. I think they also need to take an effort on themselves because lifestyle modification is actually also one part or important part in heart failure management. They need to take care of their water intake because the heart is not functioning well. You take too much water, definitely you have more water retention. They need to cut down on their salt because salt will attract water into the body, so they will actually end up with more water retention. Uh, they still need to exercise. I know it's difficult because you're breathless, but sometimes with medication, once you're less breathless, you should start exercising because exercising, uh, the heart will actually improve. The muscle that is still alive will actually come in and actually support the, the part that was the heart muscle that has already dead. So these are the things that the patient still can do. Take care of the diet, more exercise, these are the things that will actually improve the outcome. So these restrictions are real. Uh, and um, because I'm in a surgical-based training, it does hamper me from staying in long surgeries. I usually will have to have a partner with me in, in OT because I will need to have breaks in between. Um, of course, this will ultimately affect my training and my overall experience and skills. Um... And I think that has what has been brought about some well-meaning people of advising me to, to sort of give up and quit. Um, but at this point, I guess, I don't want to quit. If I reach the point where it really doesn't work anymore, then at least I can say I've tried. And I feel that for me, that's the very least. Uh, um, I want to give it all my all, give it my very best. Um, if it doesn't work out, Sometimes that's just how life is, but not because I quit. 
In fact, many people on proper treatment for heart failure not only have a chance to persevere in life, but go on to defy all expectations. And even those who have poor ejection fraction may actually experience remarkable improvements in their heart function. So the ejection fraction, the, the percentage that we have mentioned, is just for us to use it to actually diagnose or confirm that this patient has heart failure. And once we actually have confirmed that this patient has actually have heart failure, then they should be on four medication. Sometimes when you repeat the ultrasound or echosonography, the patient ejection fraction, the percentage may not actually have improved. But their symptom level and their effort tolerance usually improve. Just to give you an example, I actually have a young Indian chap who actually have a heart attack and his ejection fraction was like 30%. So with medication, his ejection percentage is still somewhere about 35 to 40. But he's able to go to base camp nearly every two years. I'm assuming you're talking about like Kinabalu. Everest. Oh, wow. Yeah, exactly. I have not been and yet the patient has been there every couple of years. I think most typical people without a heart condition uh, yeah, can't exactly. do that. So that percentage sometimes is, does not really mean uh, that you will be um, breathless, you cannot do this, you cannot do that. We just use a percentage to actually guide us that, look, this is a heart failure. Look, this is the medication that this patient should be on. Whether they will improve the ejection fraction or not, we don't really look into it. And the symptoms improvement sometimes is actually not related to the ejection fraction improvement. Professor Chi adds that studies have shown when patients take all four types of medications, their outlook and improvement of symptoms are actually better compared to patients who only take one or two types of medications. And fortunately, all four types of these treatments are also available and accessible in public health facilities in Malaysia. For a patient like Dr. Yong, there will be no choice but to continue taking his six pills daily for the rest of his life. A lot of uh, my patients actually ask me, uh, doctor, now I have improved. I used to be coming to the hospital for admission every couple of weeks. Now I hardly come to the hospital for six months. Now I actually can walk further. I can go to masjid. Uh, we just we, we didn't just one walk without stopping. Can I cut down my medication? Um, for various reasons, for example, the cost, uh, too many pills, for example. But um, we actually have looked into this and... Um, and we actually have seen a study that sort of what we call uh, divide the patient into two groups. One group, they continue just as it is. The other group, we slowly cut down the medication. And on that group, when we actually slowly cut down the medication, they actually end up with more problem. They end up, the moment we cut down the medication, they start coming into the hospital again. They start to have leg swelling again. So I think that is a reason why we usually do not advise the patient to actually... Uh, stop the medication or even reduce the dose of the medication unless, of course, they face uh, side effect from the medication. But most of this are actually quite well tolerated. I do see in my patient where after a while, uh, they become sort of uh, lost sight of their illnesses because they, they felt that because now they feel less breathless, they hardly come to the hospital now. So they thought they may actually have um, cure in a certain way. So as in every human, um, they will definitely try to cut down the medication, do less and all that. But unfortunately in heart failure, um, you will actually feel the 
uh, sequelae straight away because unlike your, for example, high blood sugar, you may not feel the high blood sugar. But the moment you cut down the medication with heart failure, the patient will feel it quickly because they will start to have water retention, their leg will swell up again. So they feel it the moment they're taking less care of themselves. Of course, a lot of things are easier said than done. And even the health professionals themselves often have no idea what kind of commitment is needed from patients to adhere to medical advice. It's always easier to say and a lot harder to do. So I I will say I hope I was a good patient to my doctors, but I'm sure I was just as uh, notoriously uh, defiant as most of my patients are to me as well. Um, I was being naughty myself in a lot of secret ways. Sometimes the simple things that look so simple before this is very different. Um, Like for example, uh, this restriction of fluid. Uh, I used to see so many patients who had to have restriction of fluid and I keep telling them, you know, uncle, cannot, cannot. You must follow. It's so, so important for your safety and for your heart and, and your lungs that you follow the fluid restriction. And I myself like... Oh my gosh, today instead of one liter, I got 1.1 liter or 1.2 liter. I'm like, oh, never mind, never mind. I just close eyes, don't, 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 don't think of the extra. And I'm like, oh, actually, it's how important it is. It's still, it's still hard to push aside your, your own desires. Despite the ups and downs, the Dr. Yong of today is a vast improvement from where he was two years ago. So I think, firstly, my energy has much been improved. Uh, I'm able to go back to work, I'm able to do rounds and walk. Uh, of course, I'm the slowest person walking, but um, at least I'm able to do all those. And um, even though I get very lethargic by night, at least by most of the hours of the day, I'm still able to function well. Um, I do get very short of breath. But otherwise, generally, I think it's because I'm able to do a lot of the things that I would need minimally to run through a day, what we call activities of daily living without having to think so hard or plan my lifestyle around it. So uh, I think in that sense, it's, it's been good. From the medical standpoint, Professor Chi is equally pragmatic about a future with heart failure. So if you are recently diagnosed to have heart failure, right, first thing first is uh, find out whether there's anything the cardiologist or the doctor can do to reverse the cause of the heart failure. In some situations, for example, if the patient actually have a valve problem by going through a valve surgery, then the heart failure in a way can be reversed. But in most cases that I have seen, the heart failure unfortunately cannot be reversed because the cause of the heart failure may be a couple of years ago or the virus has already died inside, so you cannot reverse the time cause. The good news is that over the past 20 years, we actually have new medication, right, to actually treat the patient. The patient will definitely feel better. The chances of them coming to the hospital again and again for fluid retention or water overload has been reduced. In fact, their lifespan actually improved. The chances of dying with medication actually have improved over the past couple of years. So this is definitely good news. The patient will feel better. The patient have less chance to actually die from the heart failure. So with that, the patient's outlook of their future is definitely much brighter now compared with, say, 20 years ago. And they will definitely feel better. For example, um, the patient now can actually walk better. They don't wake up in the middle of the night, for example. Um, But in the long run, 
the patient still need to really, really take care of themselves. For example, don't have further damage to their heart. I mean, if you don't take care of the risk factor like diabetes, if you get more heart attack, for example, of course, you will lose more heart muscle and your condition will get worse. So they definitely need to play a very active role in making sure that the disease does not progress by making sure that they're compliant to the medication, make sure they do enough lifestyle modification and preventing further damage to the heart. Some of the patients actually can continue to lead a, a very good life. Um, they can be like a mother and take care of the house again. Some of them may go back to athletic uh, activity, they're involved in sport, traveling and all that. So definitely nowadays is much better. I asked Dr. Yong what his future looks like. When we speak again in 20, maybe 30 years, how would you want to introduce yourself? I'm Yong Dijun. I've lived my life. I've done the things that I wanted to do and done the things that I could do. And I didn't give up. The message I really want to get through is that it's not the end. The tunnel look bleak, the road is uphill, a lot of the pathways are closed. But most importantly, there's still a path to walk. There's, there's still things that you can do and uh, despite limitations, I think this is what we should focus on. And I think as long as we keep doing the things that we can do within our limitations, in more ways than one, we are living the life. So I, I hope that it gives a sense of hope la, because I too went through that dark times and I thought that this is the end. And I hope they'll realise that this is, this is not the end. The sun will rise tomorrow and it'll be another day to do more things than you did the day before. This has been NCD Chronicles, a series featuring the experiences and challenges of people with non-communicable diseases. This episode was brought to you by Novartis Malaysia, reimagining medicine to help improve and extend lives of over 32 million Malaysians. If you missed any part of the show or previous episodes, you can listen to it on bfm.my or on our BFM app. You've been listening to Health and Living, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.